Yes. How many of you want Nathaniel to read from the children's storybook Bible again? <laughs> wow. That was, I want, the, I want the CD in my car if you're reading that. That was cool with the sound effects, too. That was really cool. All right. Well, let's take a moment and uh, let's come before our Heavenly Father before we hear his word. Will you join me? Lord, there is a message that the preacher has prepared. And then there's the message that's actually delivered. And somewhere in that gap, I I can be fearful, uh, unsure. um, And I pray, Lord, that you would overcome all the human frailties of this moment. Um, I thank you that I'm among friends and we uh, will not get everything from this passage uh, at, one, at one sitting or one hearing. So, uh, Lord, I ask you to deliver us from that sense of urgency where we have to get everything applied in, these, in this moment. And so may your peace abide among your people. Lord, uh, as last night the clouds dissipated and the cool air from thousands of feet above descended upon uh, Oahu, Lord, we pray that your spirit would descend upon us and grant us refreshment, confidence, uh, as Pastor Nathaniel mentioned, that you are real and you're with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. We, we have a plan in our sermon series uh, as we go through the year. It's this little green card. You can pick one of these up. And uh, if you'd like to give some thoughts about 2014, this is the time to do it. So uh, send me an email, a Bible book you'd love to have uh, taught from, some themes. We'd love to hear would love to hear from you on that. But 1 Corinthians 15 was planned a long time back. And the idea was that we would move from the beautiful poetry of the Messianic Psalms and we would see the, the poetry embodied, the poetry embodied in some New Testament text that's uh, really substantive and has a lot to it. And uh, so that's the idea of how we got to 1 Corinthians uh, 15 uh, this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, I am thinking it is familiar to many of you. It is the passage where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about what it is like to be under an apostolic uh, apostolic authority. Um, I want you to notice in verses 1, 2, and 3 how, how often he uh, is first-person singular, I. I delivered to you. I preached to you. And he is moving the Corinthians back to what it's like to be under an, an apostle who is directing the church with their authority to think about the right kinds of things. What might have been going on in the Corinthian church that they would need a passage on the resurrection? What might have been going on? And in, uh, in tra- uh, seminaries, they train uh, pastors to think carefully before you jump to application. We all want to get to application, don't we? When, before we jump to application, you have to pause and think what might have been going on in the original audience. This is a letter. It has uh, somewhat of a structure to it, but they have needs. They have struggles, uh, problems. 
And the idea here is that Paul uh, is bringing up this subject to address something that's going on in their lives. Uh, For instance, 1 Corinthians 13, the famous passage on love, right? All those comments about love and uh, what love is, if you were to think about why would he write this to the Corinthians? Well, they struggled with love, not only for each other, but loving the Apostle Paul. And so every sentence in this, in this letter that we refer to as a book, every sentence in this letter had, a, had meaning for the original audience. And one of the key issues of this church was they were moving to flashier teachers. They had found uh, others, and we're not 100% sure who these were. Some, uh, uh, some we, we just have, we don't know exactly their, their names, in 2 Corinthians, he calls them super apostles. But they were drawn to flashier people, uh, more in line of what perhaps the Greeks liked in, in people who spoke publicly, or public orators. There was something about them that commanded the Greeks' uh, attention and uh, appealed to their view of, of how a public speaker should, should conduct themselves. And Paul was being set aside he had a number of issues to address with the church, and it's interesting that one of the key issues it comes way late in the epistle. He talks about marriage and divorce and celibacy, food, idolatry, free, uh, personal freedoms as a Christian, worship issues, uh, order in the church. But he also mentions to them that he could not speak to them as spiritual but as babes in 1 Corinthians 3.1. In fact, there were lawsuits going on among the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a tough group to work with. They were a hard church to pastor. They attached themselves quickly to others, and they were dismissive of Paul's authority over them. And Paul, even though he was the church planter, he's the one who gave himself, loved them, developed them, they now have turned to, uh, to other sources uh, for their church life. And I'd like to just describe the Corinthians as big truth deficient. <laughs> big truth deficient. Not that these other things were not important, but they were big truth deficient. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, there were actually some among them, verse 12, who were teaching that there was no resurrection from the dead. Would you consider the resurrection a big truth topic? I think you would. I think you'd put that in the top two or three of, of Christian ideas, of biblical ideas. And yet the Corinthians were sort of tolerating these teachers, uh, uh, and they were, they, no one seemed to be disturbed about it. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Well, in fact, we have today churches that teach there is no resurrection, and we're not even sure what they do as a church or what, who do they worship and wh- why. But they were also judging the Apostle Paul They were not just putting him aside. They were actually, they had questions about him, and they were questioning him. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, he actually says, it is a small thing to be judged by you or by any human court. And so they're prideful. They've turned away from Paul, and they are big truth deficient. Um, They think that they have it all. They think they've got first things first, but really they put a lot of secondary things as first. 
I have to say that I, I identify with them. I, uh, I misplace what is first, uh, should be first in my heart, first in my thinking, first in my loves, and I put secondary things there. And uh, so this whole passage is really a corrective. It's, it's, it's to help the Corinthians understand that they need to know well what God has done in the risen Jesus Christ, the rich gospel provision. And so just briefly, I want to cover the rich uh, provision of uh, the gospel provision of real, for real world living, real world living. And then I want to talk about uh, the gospel provision for life on life resurrection modeling. I think that is, is being spoken or addressed in this passage. And then the gospel provision that leads to effort. So those three, those three ideas. Would you look at verse 1 of chapter 15? Just, just flow, go along with me, the flow, the flow of it. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Beautiful, the tenses of salvation described there. Uh, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, notice that the other preachers, the other teachers, are. I think they're being addressed there. If you want to know what it's like to ha- be around an apostle, you'll have cross and resurrection teaching. Unless you believed in vain, he says, the end of verse 2 there, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And I think there's a real world being addressed here. I think this is a wonderful theology. I, uh, I know that the resurrection is uh, always part, uh, central of a good theological textbook. But I think it's these, uh, these verses, in fact, all 58 verses in our English Bible of chapter 15, I think all 58 verses apply to real world living. Uh, for instance, there is a task that all of us need to engage in or keep going in. And it's in verse 2. Hold fast the word I preach to you. There's a task being communicated there to the Corinthians. And this is a real-world task. Hold on and do this well. In all of our small grouping, getting together, in all our fellowshipping, in all our worshiping, in all our preaching, in all our praying, what are we trying to do? Well, we are trying to remember well Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And uh, notice it also in verse 3, this holding fast. Uh, I struggle with priorities, don't you? Um, I was doing some research on the number of smartphone apps on time management and priority things. It's, there's, just, there's like at least hundreds out there, maybe thousands. But just the sense of we, it's hard for us in our day to figure out what is of first importance. The Bible doesn't wait for us to figure it out. It arrives to us in verse 3, I preached to you of first importance. Now think of the Apostle Paul walking into Corinth, assessing the situation, seeing all the idols, seeing all the temples to the various gods. And the first thing of first importance, he's going to build a church there and it's going to be built on the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, uh, that distinguishes Christianity from, from everybody else. There's all kinds of teachers 
There's all kinds of ideas and philosophies and ideologies out there. But boy, when you have someone rise from the dead, you've got something to say. And it comes as first priority for us to engage in the task of, of holding fast. It arrives already prioritized for us. So we might just go right to application right now in our hearts. What are you holding fast to right now? What are you holding on to that just feels like if you didn't hold on to this, if you didn't control this, if you didn't make this happen in your life, your life would just, would just fall apart? Well, uh, we are easily uh, drawn to fe- things that feel so urgent. The Corinthians were drawn to many, many things that felt so urgent. In fact, they were taking each other to court. So you might have a Corinthian carpenter and a Corinthian plumber, (laughs) and uh, one has defrauded the other of of money, and they don't settle it among the elders of the church. They go right to the the city magistrate, and they settle it before the the pagans. And and imagine that magistrate saying, wait, wait, don't you go to the... Don't you go to the, that, that, that church, the, the Christian group here, and the implication would be, don't you settle these kinds of things among yourselves? What was urgent among the Corinthians? Well, they demanded justice immediately. They turned to pagan courts. They were not willing to lose. What does the resurrection do for these things? I would suggest it takes the edge off of them. It certainly would be an awful thing to be defrauded from someone in the church, and they owe you money. But here is some of the work that needs to be done. Some of the work of holding fast is, well, I need to remember that a greater, greater need has been addressed in my heart and my life than this cash that I would rather have. And there is a liberating uh, uh, truth here And it takes work for us to hold on to it. It's hard for a church to keep the resurrection, the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus central to its worship. It is is a, a, a daily task to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We tend to discount it, dismiss it. The age we live in is all important. The pressures of our cultural moment are 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 so real. We tend to hold on to something really tightly, really dearly. And that isn't to say that these are are to be dismissed in our struggles, but I would say that you could pray for me that I would wrestle well holding fast to the preaching of the gospel to myself. And I will pray for you. There's a process. We don't get it all down in one sermon or on one Sunday. And you have a ministry to other people. Uh, The pulpit has its ministry. The pulpit uh, does its work. God blesses the preaching of his word. But there is a one another ministry uh, that you can have that uh, is very important. Uh, You can speak to other people who are, are, are losing grip, are not holding fast. You can come alongside them in a loving way and help them see that they have held on to something now too tightly and hold on to Jesus rising from the dead. This is all important. So uh, you are a sort of a living app. (laughs) You're a living app 
for other people. As they see this modeled in your life, your own struggle, your own words, your own counsel, you're helping them to hold on to this liberating truth. We, uh, we, one other task, I think, is the task of reveling, the task of reveling, of, of rejoicing. It's, it's not just that we hold on and we, we sort of like, well, okay, I'm, 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 grin, I'm bearing it and I'm just grinding through in the Christian life and I'm holding on and I've got some good doctrine in my back pocket and I'm doing well. It, we have to work at this to the point where we are, we are joyful in this news. There's nothing more, more of a disconnect in the church when you're singing about forgiveness of sins, but you're looking around and going, I don't think anybody believes this. Are <laughs> you talking about the, the victorious Christian life or something like that? And you know, I don't know if we've entered into any kind of a victorious joy. What, what I mean by that is that, that we, we, we have an emotional life that is part of God's redemption for us. And there are down moments and there are sad moments, but uh, this is something for us to wrestle with, this reveling, the task of... Where, where the Apostle Paul would come into the Corinthian church and he would establish them and he would, he would want for them to, to sense the excitement of this present age being destroyed and crushed, that we, we are not just left with these momentary afflictions and this momentary sorrow of this age, but we are actually granted the age to come and that should translate into uh, some joy into our life. So reveling, reveling through our calling, reveling through the fact that God has pierced through and broken through all human resistance, our own resistance to the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, We preach Christ crucified to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, there is much to rejoice in this. God has brought his power to bear in your life if you believe. Those are a couple of tasks that I think uh, relate to real-world living, holding and reveling, holding and reveling. And, of course, I think that Paul is, is he's sounding a warning here in verse 2. He says, unless you believed in vain, meaning there should be fruit. There should be evidence that this is um, really making a difference in your life. So that's the gospel for, for real-world living. Now, secondly, let me just explore something that um, is in the next few verses. I think it's there by implication. Look at verses 5 through 9. Um, talking about how he had appeared to uh, Cephas. Look at verse 5. That's Peter, the apostle Peter. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I don't know if maybe some of you, this is the first time you've heard this, that Jesus appeared to some 500 people uh, as the Lord of glory, risen from the dead. Quite remarkable. Uh, keep that in your back pocket when uh, people think that Christianity is a myth. 
Uh, you may encounter people who just dismiss it, think it's all a bunch of fables. Bring them right here to 1 Corinthians 15 and the eyewitness objective data that really was the risen Jesus Christ. But I want you to explore for a moment with me by implication. I think there's much more going on here than just a listing of those that Jesus, Jesus appeared to. I think that we have to take the whole New Testament context and say, whoa, do you know what it was like to be around the Apostle Peter when he saw the risen Jesus? Do you know what it was like to be around the apostles when they were convinced that the grave had been, uh, been de destroyed? In other words, I think this is presenting to the Corinthians the life-on-life -life resurrection modeling that must have been emanating, uh, coming out of, being lived among those people that they encountered. In light of the resurrection, what were the disciples and the apostles like? What would you be like if you had seen the risen Jesus Christ? You see, there is a life being communicated here. They are not the gospel. Peter is not the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus rising from the dead and, and dying for people's sins. But this is, this is a statement that their lives were being communicating this very life that they were talking about. Do you, do you remember Peter and how he denied his Lord and the gospel accounts at the end of the life of Jesus and how he betrayed Christ and, and denied Christ? And we know that Jesus restored him and reestablished uh, re him uh, as, as, a, as a minister and as an apostle. And then we see Peter boldly proclaiming in Acts chapter 2 in front of the very crowd that played a part in crucifying Jesus, we begin to see that the resurrection began to had real impact in Peter's life. He began to, to defy the authorities that were saying, stop preaching in, in this name. In Acts chapter 4, he says, he will not. Jesus, who took on even greater glory, having risen, lifts Peter out of a self-protective stance of his life for his life. The Apostle Paul, we know him as Saul of Tarsus. We've, we're first introduced to him as this religious maniac. He is so concerned about keeping his righteousness, uh, being seen as one who is a, 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 without any chinks in his armor, and he is one who, who just can't uh, help himself but persecute this small fledgling group um, of, we call the church. And yet what happened here is that grace has subdued these men. And the resurrection, the bedrock of the Christian faith, is communicated through words and through lives. These men were committed to the unity of the church speaking, communicating, writing letters to the church. They modeled that Jesus had a great love for his church and cared for his church, and they suffered for the church. A long way from taking your brother to court, isn't it? A long way from all the factions and, and difficulties of that Corinthian church. The eyewitnesses were modeling a way of life, new motives for living. You see, the resurrection is packed 
with moral meaning. Christ died for sins, and he rises. And in his rising, we know that he was vindicated by the Father, and that now translates into a union with Christ by faith. And this makes a difference in our lives. They, as, a, as the first wave of ministers of the gospel, were deeply humbled by their need. Seeing Jesus crucified, seeing him risen, communicated how deep their need was. And God's Spirit breathed life into their modeling, into their eyewitness account of Jesus but they brought to bear the meaning of his death to different crowds, moving cross-culturally, willing to risk having seen this risen Christ. Again, we ask the question, what might it have been like to be around those who, became, who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection? I would suggest that really we're bearing witness to the to the the resurrection of Jesus right now. I would say that your life, though you have not seen him, as Peter says, you love him. We are bearing witness to Jesus Christ risen from the dead at every time we gather in worship. And we are convinced over and over and over again of the goodness of it, of, of the wonder of it. And again, God is God is working upon us and granting to us real life change as we gaze upon the risen Christ. There's a, a book by Sam Alberry called Lifted, Experiencing the Resurrection Life. And he, he says this, Jesus rose from the dead. God gives the public vindication of his son. God declares something about us that through faith we really are declared his we are tasting new life through God speaking to our conscience. Through faith, we have been united to him such that his death becomes our death. We died in him. And his resurrection becomes ours. We are raised in him. The New Testament is a record of, uh, of lives that embraced these truths, saw the risen Jesus, and they tur turned the world upside down. And uh, Sam Alberry continues in this book, and he says this, With it, the resurrection, we enjoy a whole new, excuse me, a whole host of newness, new life, new perspective, new conduct, new power, new ambition. We're bearing witness, even right now. You are helping others uh, today simply by your worship, simply by participating in the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are in union with Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord of glory. You're bearing witness to him. And if you're not a Christian here, um, we would ask that you continue to investigate, continue to observe, continue to hear. And I would suggest that you're not only hearing, but you're, you're seeing with peripheral vision and you're watching these Christians. And I would suggest what you're seeing in them is certainly not perfection, but what you're seeing is the life of Jesus alive in people who struggle, uh, who are not perfect, but his life is active in us. And uh, that's a bold thing to, to declare. Uh, we uh, have our faults, uh, but we 
we, we hope that you will find this resurrected Jesus uh, as your Savior. Life on life, resurrection modeling. We really can't go through that list of people there that Paul gives in verses 5 and following without recognizing they were not just sort of ATM dispensing machines or facts about Jesus. There were facts about the resurrection. But it's in the context of Peter, Peter putting his life on the line for that fact. Putting his life on the line for these truths, you see? So uh, may we continue to be built up in, the, in these truths and, and live out this life-on-life modeling there is this whole, this whole host of newness that we enter into. And then finally, I think there's this, this is really unique here in the passage, verses 9 through 11, 9 through 11. Um, By the grace of God, I am what I am. <laughs> I just think the subtext is there's, I know you think I'm weak. <laughs> I know you don't think I'm much. <laughs> Uh, but I'm still your apostle. I think that's the message. Uh, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The apostle Paul, I think, is saying here that there's a gospel provision that leads to effort a gospel provision that leads to effort. The Corinthian church existed because of effort. Now, of course, it was God's will and God ordained it, but someone traveled uh, 50 miles uh, from Athens. It took them a long time, and they were a long, long way from home, and they engaged in cross-cultural uh, missions, um, born as a Jew, uh, now interacting with Greek culture. And he says, uh, I am what I am by the grace of God. And what it looked like was real work. What it looked like was real effort. Uh, I may have been the last of the apostles. I may have been untimely born, verse 8. But God's grace, verse 10, toward me was not in vain. Verse uh, NIV says, not without effect because it translated into time that was redeemed. The Apostle Paul was self-consciously aware that he had wasted his time persecuting the church. It was a futile effort. He was told so by Jesus in Acts chapter 9. It's hard to kick against the goads. Paul, you you don't want to do this. (laughs) You're up against me. And this life of futility was exchanged for a life of deep purpose. And the grace of God that, that brought me to saving faith was not, not in vain. It translated into real work. It was not without effect. And so I think hard work flows out of the grace of God. The grace of God. Hard work. I think uh, it is hard work to plant a church. It's difficult work to to learn a new language or be a cross-cultural missionary. But if Jesus, who has come and he has uh, pierced this age of death, Jesus, who has come, who has risen victoriously, uh, and he's withholding judgment on the world, and he holds forth to us 
the hope of eternal life. And if this translates into a glorious truth in our souls, who is going to think it really is work? It's just a, a grateful response. It's just a joyful thank you. I think I'll go and serve you out of gratitude. You see, it is work, but it's also the grace of God. It's the grace of God activating deep purpose in our lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is far from an abstract idea, far from just a chapter in a good theology book. The resurrection of Christ is intended by His Spirit to energize our lives. Paul thought of it in terms of his preaching, uh, the difficult task of preaching, preaching when someone might throw a brick at you, preaching when you may not cause a revival but a riot. He, he refers to fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. Very difficult, suffering, hardships. But the gospel is a summons to cast uh, our vision away from ourselves and onto Jesus Christ. Now, the task for us is that this is not just preacher talk on Sunday morning. That this is something we must reflect on, remember daily. And you see, what's really working, I believe, is Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. Don't mistake what I'm saying as, oh, I see, just believe rightly in the resurrection and you'll become a hard worker. No, it's more believe rightly and fall in love with the one who rose from the dead and watch what that love translates into in your life. You see, love was sent to this earth. Love was embodied. Love went after sinners. What might you be called to do? You will be called in the same path. The same path. Faith works through love. So, it's quite remarkable how this whole passage, and I really would encourage you this afternoon, read these 58 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Read them over and over. Notice how he ends this passage on the resurrection in verse 58. I'll just read it out loud for you if you don't, don't have your Bible right there. Therefore, my be beloved brothers, listen to how he talks, might be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I think we have a countercultural um, point here. Uh, we live in an age where we really, uh, it's a cynical age. It's a cynical age. Uh, really what we've arrived at is the only place of meaning and significance is inside me. We're cynical. We don't really believe in many institutions anymore. Uh, every institution is under attack. And the only thing really left is just your own personal preferences, um, maybe a little affluence coming your way. But really, um, 
we don't know. And there may, in fact, just, I suggest this, is there a cynicism that's creeped into your understanding of the Christian life? Is your work within the church, your work as a, as a member of the church, a regular attendee here, is your, your sense of involvement, your sense that this means something, your sense that this is deeply purposeful and, and connected to God's... Per- is that being affected? Is it just that you're putting in time? Is it just that you're putting in a worship service for this moment, but really... Really, your, your deep meaning in life is found somewhere else. Do you believe that work in the Lord is in vain? Is, it doesn't really amount to much. You see, the task that we're left with as we wrap up this passage is this. The task is to, is to think more clearly and in fact, more lovingly of the God who has connected us to the one who rose from the dead. Everyone is looking for a big event in life. You, you're looking for a big event. I, even, even if you've had a lot of big events in your life up to this point, you're still looking for something, aren't you? Everyone's in search of the, of the magic it. You've got, a, you've got a nice house. Well, now you need a vacation house. You, you got a vacation house. Well, now you need a boat. Uh, you got a boat. Now you need, and this this search of the magic it characterizes the day and age in which we live. Do you know? This morning, in the last couple of mornings, the sun has risen with beautiful clarity. Many of you have commented about just how beautiful it is right now on Oahu. It's stunning. The winter here is extraordinary. And when the sun rises, we, we can't help but be drawn, and, and our attention is, is drawn to it. And people at the beach just, just stop and stare, and pictures are taken. That image of the sun rising, I want you to, I want you to, to magnify it by 10,000, of Jesus Christ returning in glory as the risen King. You see, you're already part of that age if you believe in Jesus. You're part of the age to come, and that shining glory is is already shining into your soul. And deep purposes are underway. Whether you feel them or not, whether you, you sense them or not, God is at work. And this is what Paul wanted for his Corinthian friends. Put this as first priority. Jesus is risen from the dead. Will you pray for me that I would live and conduct my life in light of that? Think in terms of my problems in light of that. And I will pray for you. And may we become those who can live out the one another's and say, but you know, can I share with you some really good news? Let's pray. Lord, it really is faith working through love. Father, thank you for the 